Well, I want to welcome everybody to another installment of Unraveling Religion. And it's my honor today to be with uh, Rich Greco. Rich, I'm just wondering, can you, can you tell me a little bit, tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, sure. Uh, I, I, depending on what would be of interest uh, to, your, to your constituency, I guess I'm a, a professor of philosophy um, and cultural history. Uh, well, I'm former, I'm kind of quite, I'm pretty much retired now, um, but I still teach courses in philosophy and cultural history um, for Florida State College and then various other, a few other institutions. Um, and uh, that's where I research and publish in sort of the, I research and publish in the areas of um, sort of metaphysics and philosophy of mind and consciousness, as well as comparative philosophy of science and religion and themes related to those things. Um, so that's kind of where I'm coming from. What, what is that in relation to the mystical? How do you relate that to the mystical? Um, you know, I guess, you know, in academic philosophy, you can, academic studies generally, you can avoid, and they're very good at it, avoid dealing with the mystical at all, if you want. Uh (laughs) But I'm, that's really, you know, I guess what they would call the mystical. In in the academic world, they use that as a pejorative term, don't they? Um, Mm. You know, something sort of abnormal, quasi-normal, or, you know, something that only weird people have. Um, but that's one of my areas of interest. And to me, you know, uh, that's where if you want to explore consciousness, um, where it's really at and, and, and religious experience in relation to science and culture. That's really, I think maybe, maybe I, I'd like to hear what you think about that. It's most important contribution to our experience collectively is that it awakens us to deeper and wider modes of experience that, this, you know, commercial culture that we've created doesn't allow us to go. So I don't know. What do you think? Well, I'm curious to hear what you, what, what your, your perceptions of what separates us from that direct perception of reality or that direct perception of consciousness. Um, Well, I guess, you know, and and, (laughs) this is coming from too, a lot of the people I've heard speaking with you on, on, on your show, um, as well as my own research and, and, and writing and thinking about this, I, um, you know, I think one of the things that does is the society that we're a part of and the culture that we're a part of, as I just sort of alluded to, I think, I think where we're at um, culturally um, does not give us a lot of space as beings to explore that dimension of who we are. I mean, it just doesn't. I mean, people, I mean, even if it, even if it's not deliberately disparaged, say when you're in school or when you're at work or even when you're right. out in public, it's you most normal, most people don't have time for it because they're too busy with the mindless, empty distractions um, that, you know, that, that, that the culture sort of forces on them. Um, the e- know, the economics of, our reality and our culture, the economics, right? I mean, absolutely. Yeah. So interesting. So I know we, we had shared this, um, we'd shared a love of like uh, roomy, right? Yeah. 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 And, uh, and so there's that quote, gamble everything for love. If you're a true human being, mm. if not leave this gathering, half heartedness does not reach into majesty. Mm. That sums it up, doesn't it? And and I guess our 
participation in um, in the world we live in requires a kind of half-heartedness. It certainly does in the academic world. Yeah, um, like a, a splitness. It's almost encouraged, right? Compartmentalization. Yeah, compartmentalization and um, and uh, you know fear of of talking or thinking or expressing ideas that haven't been aren't considered acceptable in very narrow parameters of, of, of what's, what's considered normal. Yeah. So I think, uh, yeah, but, but we, we, you know, we live in a society that seems to celebrate that kind of thinking people, a lot of people anyway, love Rumi and love what he has to say. And I bet a lot, most people in the academic world are, you know, read that poem and are very inspired, but boy, when they get into the, you go to a conference and you want to be a Rumi, forget about it. Yeah. I'm sure, you know, even worse, right in the working world. I mean, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to discover um, any uh, higher dimensions of consciousness when you're working as a server on the McDonald's drive-through, right? <laughs> and they don't want yeah, it's, it's to. Tough. What do you do? What do you in your interest to the higher levels of consciousness? Probably like you. I mean, I don't know, but what else? What what else, what else is there that's important, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. It's. It seems like it seems like were there were there formative experiences or insights that you had or was it reading reading certain authors or yeah that's a, that's a that's a great question um, I, I wish I wish I could point to a really great you know anecdotal epiphany that I had that would be make a great story but I can't um, I think yeah. I've always sort of been on this path I, I um. I remember I went to my, and it was a while ago, my first high school reunion and uh, everybody was getting together, you know, 10 years after we, and, and I, and uh, you know, everybody's talking about what they were doing. And a lot of people were really surprised at where people had wound up. And I, and I thought I was going to surprise everybody. I said, yeah, you know, I went to college, I'm a college, I'm a philosophy professor now. And everybody was like, yeah, figures, you know? So, so I guess <laughs> I've always been kind of there, you know, on that, in a sense on that, on that path with my mind on that, um, you know, occupied with that, that kind of thing. Um, and as life has gone on, it's only for me, especially the, the older I, the more uh, chronologically challenged I get <laughs> in, in terms of age, you know, the more important, I guess it gets to me because I'm considering my mortality and, and, and seeing people and losing people, um, I think has a lot to do with it. Right. I mean, realizing mortality is right. Is this, Maybe the central, um, I don't know what spiritual issue conf that confronts us personally, I guess. Um, yeah. What happens after this, right? I mean, what happens after this? Yeah, yeah, yep, yeah. yeah. How about you? I really am curious. Uh, yeah, no, 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 definitely. I mean, for, for me, I think, you know, I was just talking with a friend the other day. And uh, he was talking about how he's he's our age and he really feels like he's he's barreling towards death. Like that's the wow. insight that he had. He's our age. And yeah. so he's he's actually he's living he's living out of his car, traveling around by choice. Good and just him. he has in his heart. He's taught me so much. Um, he says he only has so many heartbeats to give. Wow. Where does he want to invest those heartbeats? And it's not trading his time for some economic paycheck. 
So he's really taught me a lot about that and want versus need. Like, I think he got into this because he wanted to, and he's beginning mm. to discover that he really needed to. Yeah. You know, he really needed yeah. to travel. He mm. really needed to be untethered. He really needed to, needed to be exploring, like, you know, I think of Gandhi and uh, my experiment with truth. Like, mm. just the, the, the test it and see, like, does this work or not? Like, yeah. It's kind of fascinating, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> he says, I only have uh, so many heartbeats to give. It sounds like a line from Rumi, doesn't it? It, it does. It yeah. does. And that, you know, they say there's a tradition, Rich, that says that words from the heart penetrate the heart. You know, in Judaism, they say that. Yeah. And um, mm. I really feel like, you know, in another, in another vein or another avenue, we take shelter beneath the wings of friendship, right? So like when we have deep, authentic, genuine friendship and we connect from this heart place, it embeds itself in our, in our others, our other friends heart. And that's yeah. what I think he's really done for me is like, yeah. it's a great awakening to live unconventionally in that sense. But like, he's the most practical um, rational, centered person you could meet. Yeah. And this this is what was offered in our society where he's been led to, you know? It sounds as though he really needed to break out of the, the um, routine mold that commercial society wants, need, feels that you need to put yourself in in order to really connect with these deeper resources he's, he has, I guess. It certainly yeah. didn't hold so many of the greats, right? Like, I was just reading an article about Tolstoy um, and Gandhi, uh, who were, you know, very uh, close correspondents and things like that, um, and and how that issue prompted them to uh, to recognize the urgency of of living more deeply. But it's tough. It's 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 difficult, isn't it? Yeah. The question of why is always existential or it's for the divine like mm. why why do why do things happen what but the how how do we live more deeply like yeah i don't know yeah. how do we live more deeply huh um yeah, that's my problem <laughs> that's what i was hoping to get that was what i was hoping to, for you to address in, in to help me because seriously that's um one of the problems and i i've talked to our you know our mutual friend we we talk about a lot and um um, who always pushes me to, um, in terms of having a counseling background like you do, um, to, okay, you know, these are great thoughts. How are you going to manifest these in your life? And, you know, and, and, and that to me is, is difficult, is the hard part. Because I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to live authentically. Or maybe I am. It's just, I don't, sometimes I wonder, I read Krishnamurti is one of my um, one of my go-to guys. I, I love Krishnamurti. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and I, 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 again, he's a guy I've, I've studied and written a, a little bit about. And, um, you know, he, it, one of the things he always said is that, you know, if you're living, a, he doesn't use the term enlightenment or anything like that, but if you're living an authentic life, you won't know it, according to him, right? Because, yeah. you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's too spontaneous, too vital, you know, the minute you stand back and reflect and say, okay, now, you know, now I'm there, you're not there anymore. Just by virtue of the fact you did that, you placed yourself at remove from it. 
And that's tough for me, um, living that kind, living that authentically and that spontaneously. I love the term authenticity, living with authenticity mm-hmm. yeah. and genuinely and congruently. I don't know about this term enlightenment. I don't, yeah. I don't, I, you know, and, and when going back to the beginning of the conversation, we sort of spoke about what prevents us from seeing into consciousness. And I don't think it's anything quantifiable, hmm. you know? Yeah. I think it's, it's really the enmeshment in our identity, right? Mm. And so if you don't have a crisis come along to shatter that identity, then, that, then mm. it's untouched and it remains in place. Mm. And then that's what you work with. Mm. Um, because I, I, I don't know about you, Rich, but like I feel like things are brought. Like, mm. you know, circumstances, events, people, mm. they're brought to us, right? Yeah. So like if, you're, if your identity has not been crushed or shattered or questioned in a deep way, there isn't a need for that until it happens. You know what I mean? And I think that that really makes makes a great deal of sense. That this article I was reading about Tolstoy was was uh, uh, the Russian author and sort of I guess he's considered an existentialist philosopher as well. Um, his big um, his his epiphany um, came when he became so despairing of life yeah. and so exhausted by the search for answers that. By their very nature, I guess by the very nature of a search for answers, you remove yourself from the finding of them. Um, finally, just literally wanted to die. Maybe that was the kind of crisis, I guess, maybe you're talking about, because that's essentially what he was describing. He sort of there's this complete loss of purpose and then loss of self-identity, which is connected, I suppose. Um, and then he finally had this sense of where he stood in the universe. Um, so that, that gave him peace. I don't know. And I don't know what that peace consists of um, or what it's like, because I don't know if I'm in light. I don't know if I'd be, if I'm authentic or enlightened or whatever uh, term you want to use, but um, that's what it took for him. And maybe um, I've never had the courage to face that. You're a profound teacher. You're, you're like, you're a very effective teacher. Yeah, and so like, you know, in the Bhagavad Gita, they talk about how, you know, what is your dharma? What is your, what is your work? To teach is, you know, a good teacher is only a, a very good student, really. I mean. Very true. Yeah. So oftentimes yes. I think many, many of us are fulfilling our, our dharma mm not knowing that we fulfill our dharma, mm-hmm. you know, for me, Rich, I, I often, I'm, I'm often like, what else do I need to do? Yeah. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I get that. And I guess sort of that's what Krishnamurti sort of get to get back to that point was sort of saying, if you're, if you're enlightened, you're not going to know it. And the minute you stand back and try and figure it out, you're going to separate yourself from that state. I don't like, maybe, maybe enlightenment's a bad term, but so I don't know. I just I guess what I'm looking for. Heidegger, the philosopher, used to, was always talking about the, using this term. Um, said talked about being at home in the world, uh, feeling. Uh, at home. Yeah, I, I love that expression. I, I really yeah. do. Um, because I, logistically and and sort of spiritually, that sense of at homeness is something that really I don't know it resonates with me. That concept. 
Um, and I've, I guess I've never, I'm waiting to really feel that way, I guess. And that to yeah. me, I feel it will maybe mean that I've attained something like the state that Tolstoy did finally and Gandhi. Have you, have you, do you think you're there? Do you, do you feel at home in the world? I have come to find a place where I am at home in the world. Yeah. yeah. And I can tell you that it came, it came through great struggle. I had like, mm-hmm. I had some um, traumatic experiences growing up, like through my high school years, which led to this, what I, I refer to as a koan. Uh, the universe brought me a koan, which is what mm-hmm. is the matter with me? And mm-hmm. so I would question myself very deeply, like, what mm-hmm. is the matter with me? What is the matter with me intensely for over the course of years? And I think in different ways, insights came. The center of the universe is exactly where you sit. The center of the universe is exactly where you are, Rich. And, and that's what the rabbis say. That's what the rabbis mm-hmm. teach. And mm-hmm. I feel a resonance, a kinship with that. that um, and I don't think that, I think the most surprising thing about my spiritual journey has been that I thought there would be something that would happen, but it's nothing extra. It's, there's nothing special about it. And it, it did. It came from like this universe, the universe bringing this koan, what is the matter with me? Fascinating. And interesting when you say that, when you said that about the koan and when you said, and when you, the way you describe your sense of existence afterwards it, it reminds it reminded me of this um, before I was enlightened mountains were just mountains and rivers were just I don't know if you've heard this one and rivers were just rivers and then when I became enlightened I'm probably just murdering this this uh, this saying but when then when I became enlightened then when I was becoming enlightened mountains were no longer mountains rivers were no longer rivers and now that I'm enlightened mountains are again mountains and rivers are again rivers. Um, yeah. And then the another one was um, a, a one that I really liked that it's always stuck with me. Um, a Buddhist monk told me this, as a matter of fact, was speaking in a class. Um, he, he said, um, um, sitting quietly, it was a poem, sitting quietly, doing nothing, spring comes and the grass grows by itself. Um, yeah. Oh, that's that's like be a Taoist expression too, right? Is that the kind of thing you're talking about how things don't change and yet you receive them in a new way is that the like my relation to things has changed because um there's a subtle shift in the understanding about i guess you'd call it it's not really an accurate term but the backdrop of all this the backdrop of all this Hmm. it's all as it should be as it is Hmm. yeah and so but there's, for me, there was a lot of struggle and searching, uncertainty, anxiety, pain, suffering. And to a degree, I still have some of those things, but there's more a confidence that things are, it's a, it's a confidence in our original nature, as Shinru Suzuki says from Zen Bond Beginner's Mind. Yeah. Mm. What, the point he emphasizes is a strong confidence in our original nature. Yeah. So you're more at peace. Are you more at peace with mortality? With uh, infinitude, with death, with losing things that you love and people? 
or is that? Yeah, I don't, I don't worry so much about it. Like I know that, you know, I have a deep belief in, in, I have a deep belief in um, sort of past and future incarnations. Mm. And so, and we do this incarnation after incarnation, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so it's like, yeah, yeah. So nothing's lost, nothing's ever lost. And, and really, the thing that the, the one element that binds us, you know, mm. that, and I think it's love that binds us in karmic affinity, mm. so mm. that the true, the true, genuine, deep, congruent expressions of friendship and love and relationship find themselves again in future incarnations as they have in past incarnations. So you can talk about things in terms of soul family, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I mean, everything you say, I, it speaks with absolute, absolutely definitively to where I think I'm coming from or where I want, I want to be going spiritually, put it that way. And yet you seem to be more, um confident where you are with it um so i'm wondering why that is what is it different about your experience than mine that has gotten you there maybe it's the suffering i mean maybe everything you say is what i want to believe in and and in my heart of hearts i sense that's that's the way existence is but i still you know I, i then i doubt it then i doubt it and i think i buy into the the picture that commercial culture has given us, right? We live in a pointless, meaningless, mechanistic world where we're just, you know, higher order amoeba, basically, and we're going to, you know, and, and our, our existence is pointless and we just, you know, go around looking for things to consume for a brief period of time and then we're gone forever and it didn't matter anyway. And then thinking, well, maybe they're just right. I don't know. So what what how, what is it that, that got you there in a way that, I don't know, that assures you that, 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 that this is true, I guess. If I had to isolate it, I would say fanning the flame of faith grows us, grows mm-hmm. us in this way, in this direction. And it's a question and matter of the heart. There's, no, there's no, nothing quantifiable. There will never be anything quantifiable about shunyata. There will mm-hmm. never be anything yeah. quantifiable about the existence yeah. of God. There mm-hmm. never, there's never going to be anything quantifiable about the existence of spirit world. Yeah. That you're not going to find it through the rational search. So if I'm looking for empirical evidence for this, you're not, you're <laughs> I'm, never I'm never going to find it. Yeah. You're never yeah. going to find it. Yeah. It's built that way for a reason. It's Very built that way for a reason. Yeah. What's the reason you think? I mean, why? Well, I, I think that, so it points us back to like living the genuine congruent, from the heart looking for those genuine authentic connections of like what's true what's real between us you know Mm, yeah what binds us what binds us in love you know yeah 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 fascinating um and then so then your response to because i've you've either had them on your your podcast right i've heard you've had some secular humanist sort of so and and you know and you you interview them you're really respectful and i think you gain a lot from the from the what they have to say um, but obviously you're not there. Um, what's your response to that? I mean, what, uh, what, what is your response to that, to that, to the, to the, the secular humanist who says, oh, come on, you know, <laughs> this is fanciful thinking it makes you feel good because you're afraid to face reality. 
right? And and uh, and stuff like that. But where's the evidence for it, or you know um, that kind of thing? What's your response to that? My, my response is it doesn't make a shit bit of difference whether you're a deep believer in God or a secular humanist. If you have ethical application of morals and ethics in your in your daily life, I don't think it makes a shit bit of difference. Mm-hmm. There's no difference. You know, really. Well, why? Well, I mean, that's relationally, that's true. But like internally, intrinsically, there's a big difference. Yeah, see that? Yeah, that's what I mean. When I think that way, I get depressed. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, when I think like when 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 I'm thinking like you, I'm not. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm hopeful and happy and I start to feel at home in the world. Um, So that's yeah, I guess that's I, I, I in a sense, I see what you mean about there not being a difference. Um, but boy, it does seem like you're going to live life in a different spirit, depending on what, what belief system you adopt in that regard. No. Yeah. I mean, I can't answer. I don't know why certain people have seeds of faith and other people seem to manifest tremendous ethic without a notion of a karma or a backdrop of justice. And they certainly seem to be very spiritual. So many of them are deeply spiritual as well, aren't they? Brilliant, sensitive, deeply spiritual, lacking nothing essentially, except for a difference in perspective. That's true. That's true. true. So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe you're right. Maybe it doesn't matter. You know? (laughs) I mean, but for me, for me, like, you know, there's a certain, there's a certain fulfillment I think as a human being, there's a fulfillment that I have that I feel. That makes sense. But back to you, Rich, like yeah. what are some of your, what, what are some of your, uh, may I ask like some of your major influences like Krishnamurti and. Yeah. Krishnamurti, actually Krishnamurti and Thich Nhat Hanh, the famous Buddhist monk and philosopher and, um, Martin Luther King nominated him for a Nobel Peace Prize. He was from Vietnam, just for anybody who's not familiar with him. He's pretty well known, though. Um, they, they were the subject of my doctoral dissertation. Um, uh, so, so intellectually, and, and again, my intellectual and spiritual influences, I mean, I can't really separate them for me. That's why I, I pursued this path. So those two guys, I mean, those two thinkers um, are among my, my really uh, profound influences. Um, Gosh, I don't know. There's so many, right? Um, Gandhi and Confucius and Plato, as a matter of fact. Um, oh, wow. So there you go. I guess those guys. I mean, it's hard to, it's like asking a, a you know, a, a music theory professor who their favorite musicians are or whatever, who their most profound yeah. musical influences are. I guess there are a lot, you know. Um, those are very, those are very, they share a lot of spiritual qualities, but divergent in some ways absolutely yeah 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 definitely which is why i one of the 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 points of the book it's try it's sort of a a work in comparative um philosophy and sort of comparative almost comparative intellectual history because we're trying to look at the legacies of these thinkers on a on a on a particular theme um and um and you're right um what I find interesting, though, is, and, and I, I, I always, I find myself doing this, is looking at the commonalities of, that they share, right? Um, I think those three guys, as 
utterly diverse, right, as the historical and cultural circumstances they came from were, and the philosophical traditions that Confucius and Plato inaugurated great philosophical traditions, and Gandhi was inheriting one, um, was a great figure in it. Um, as different as they were, they some to me, I, and again, this is for me, that some essential beliefs about the nature of existence that they shared give me hope again that there is some sort of and I think feed into my own sense of what's ultimately at work in the world (laughs) that's the right um, expression for it so I I I found that I find those kind of endeavors really interesting and uh yeah how about you I mean do you have any particular (laughs) Rumi uh Matheson's The Snow Leopard really it just blew the doors and windows out of my mind. And I'm interested because I've never read it. I've heard of it. I, I should read it. it. It's funny. I have the the opening quote from Rilke. Oh, really? Which is, it goes like this. That is at bottom the only courage that is demanded of us, to have courage for the most strange, the most singular, and the most inexplicable that we may encounter. That mankind has in this sense been cowardly. He has done life endless harm. The experiences that are called, quote-unquote, visions, the whole so-called, quote-unquote, spirit world, death, all those things that are so closely akin to us have been daily parrying, been so crowded out of life, to the senses to which we could grasp them have been atrophied, to say nothing of God. Excellent. Boy, that's true, isn't it? Kind of speaks in a sense, except he was a hell of a lot more eloquent than me to what I was sort of trying to allude to in the very beginning of our conversation about the nature of our, I mean, in a sense, it's even deeper than culture. Maybe it's something intrinsic to the human condition that makes us I think so. afraid I think of is. who we really are, right? And it yeah. manifests itself in culture. And our culture is particularly good at manifesting it, I think. It gives people lots of opportunities to hide from who they really are and face those those great um, spiritual undertakings and challenges and that I'm interested in think that it's something intrinsic to to the human condition to from the deeper sense of who we are I believe in separation of the body and soul I I believe that we are a soul Mm. I believe that there are realms that are unseen I believe we can access non-ordinary states of consciousness Mm -hmm. and um, you know but again when you delve deeply into your heart you will see it but if you get into your mind, you'll lose it. Yeah, that's been my direct experience. You know, that's been yeah. my direct experience. No, I, I guess that speaks directly to what Krishnamurti was saying that if you if you're there, you don't know it, and the minute you try to reflect on it and analyze, or at least sort of analyze it, right, and distance your give yourself a critical intellectual distance from it, you lose it. I mean, I guess that's what he was saying. And what you're saying, right? And I mean, there is that sense, I know, you know, in Zen, they'll say, say it again and again and again, that it's the very process of trying to attain enlightenment, or one, one of the things, the, the very process of trying to attain enlightenment that separates you from enlightenment. Turning the enlightenment into an object of desire is exactly what keeps you from attaining that desire, Right. Um, yeah, dropping dropping all expectation, I think, is a is a vital matter, and it's why I loved like because just for the audience, like you know, I was like, Rich, do you want a list of questions? And he's like, No, <laughs> let's just go. So, 
Well, I think if I was going to do an interview, I'd plan for it. I'd have tons of questions listed in advance and want to uh, proceed methodologically uh, to, 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 to demonstrate a point. And again, I think that's a lot of the, the conditioning that comes from that poisons the mind in the academic world. But without being a spiritual tourist, you seem like a, a person who really draws on many. At least I gather that from your interviews and your writings, you draw from a lot of traditions, which I do, too, as well. But I'm, I, I feel more like a, like a spiritual tourist sometimes because I'm, I'm interested in them. Um, and I've, to some extent, I practice them in, in terms of I meditate every day and, and the, the techniques, if you want to call them that, that I use are things that I've garnered from many different traditions, um, really. But I, I can't say I've, I've ever followed a, a path. You know, um, I've never you know, followed a Zen path or, uh, or the, um, a Hindu path or, or, or even a Christian path or Judeo or any, any of that, you know, or anything like that. So you you get all these other faiths, but you're also, you, you sense where your spiritual roots are in terms of specific traditions as well. I feel that that's true. Yeah. Like I have, you know, with my, my Jewish upbringing, you know, I feel an yeah. affinity with that and yeah. You know, in this incarnation, I found Zen and I feel an affinity mm. with that. And yeah, yeah. I wish I had, I, I think maybe that's important. Spiritually, maybe and ethnically as well. I've often thought about that. You know, I, when, you, when you come from sort of a, uh, despite my, my, my sort of Italian last name, I come from a pretty waspy sort of a family, um, you know, pretty middle American waspy culture. Um, and I sometimes I envy people who have an ethnic tradition as much as you suffer for it in the, you know, in our <laughs> society, God knows if you're, you know, if you're, unless your ethnic tradition happens to be white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. But if you have, you know, if you have another tribe, I, I think it gives you a certain base to draw from in life, uh, spiritually and, and, and morally, um, that, that if you, you've sort of been, if, if you've never been raised with one in particular, you don't really have. I maybe I don't know, but my guess would be that you, you're having a, a Jewish heritage has probably been a great gift for you in many ways. It has been, yeah. It's an anchor yeah. for me, yeah. I was raised in a, a liberal Protestant sort of tradition, which means basically nothing, right? You go to church <laughs> because you're supposed to, and it's respectable, and, and they teach some sort of milk toast version of Christ's life and message, and, and you're open, just sort of generally open-minded about everything. I think that's a, good, a great gift in a lot of ways, but it also doesn't give you a really rich spiritual ground to draw from that I would think you'd have if you were raised in something like a, a Jewish tradition. Am I wrong? A source of like comfort, you know? Yeah. Um, but I, I have also found, Rich, that um, there, there's the mystical element of Christianity, which is deep and fascinating. Yeah. Mm. Um, you know, the mystical element of uh, Christianity is. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, absolutely. You don't get a lot of that in the liberal Protestant tradition, right? If you're going to the Methodist yeah. church or the Presbyterian yeah. church, you know, they, they do not delve into mysticism. You do in a lot of churches. And, and again, like I said, the, but they're, they're ethnic churches, right? You, um, the African-American church, right? That, that's a very rich source of profound spirituality and yeah. social justice and, you know, yeah. great, you know, um, and, you know, ethical thought and things like that. But 
so I agree with you. And, and certainly Greek Orthodox tradition, and there's so many, right? There are just so many um, um, Christian spiritual traditions as well that, that do have that, that notion. But they're not what you'd call mainline churches. Um, so that I think maybe you miss out on. That's one thing I think you maybe miss out on if you, you've been raised in a Protestant sort of mainline church culture. Um, but then again, I was just reading, a, a, doing some research, and I was reading a, some Pew Report studies on the uh, trajectory of conventional religion in the Western world, and even in the United States, which is the most religious, probably the most religious country in the industrialized, you know, post-industrial world. And there aren't many people in conventional churches anymore. So maybe that's, um, maybe that's not a problem that uh, we're going to have very much longer. I don't know. I hope not, because I, I hope I hope I hope that there's a translation or a transference from the external manifestation of honoring spirituality and community to making it a deeply personal, you know, something that need not even be spoken spoken about in a Taoist yeah. sense, you know. Mm, yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah, I agree. Because it's the same thing. I mean, it's cross cultural. It's the same thing. It's. Yeah, you know, Dogen. Dogen says there are many languages but one tongue. Mm. Yeah. 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 Do you think and and uh, the the uh, uh, the Vedas, right? The famous truth is one, but people call it many names, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, along those lines, I, I you know, I am curious. Um, you know, if you had to, if we were going to talk, you know, write a, I was going to write my uh, book about the the philosophy of Joel. Um, and, and, and his, your metaphysics, so to speak, um, would, are, are, I, I sense in your thought that you, you believe in, uh, that there is a, some sort of ultimate unified ground of existence that emanates everything that all these, all the multiplicity of, of what we see and do and experience, um, and maybe the source of, Human, again, I'm projecting a lot on you, so tell me if this is wrong. And that maybe that the sense in which human beings become fallen in the religious sense of that term, spiritual sense of that term, is that we we become so caught up in these manifestations, we forget about the the ground or the source that they come from, um, and feel separate and feel isolated and alienated and lonely, and that the reconnect the reconnecting energy um, to that would be love. Because that's where it all comes from, ultimately, in, in the beginning. Now, is that at all? Is that fair to where you're coming from? Is that close to you at all? Yeah, I think so. I think I, think, I think it is all. I think that's the essence of the great traditions that I, I really love myself. Uh, would I read your stuff and everything? Is that would that be accurate? Is do you feel that way? Yeah, I feel that this is a unified experience. That you and I are same self in different yeah. center points. You in your incarnation, you in your body, me and mine. Yeah. With a, and I, I feel like we are broken off from the the one source or God. It gave of itself. It gave of itself. You there and me here. Yeah. For for us to be free to choose, mm. you know, in that freedom of infinite choice and possibility. But it is also all known, you know, that there's yeah. no. There's no no discord between predetermination and free will. That 
yeah. you know, from right. from the, the the vantage point of God that it all is known. Because yeah. when you when you love something, you know it, and it loves us, and it knows yeah. us. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That that sounds like exactly what I was saying. So you and I agree completely. It's a good thing. I mean, I think really, I think our 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 metaphysics and theology is one hundred percent synonymous. It sounds that way, anyway. You, so we have not much to talk about. I guess it's well. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but I'll tell you, you, you really resonate to me as someone who, who would follow a Hindu Buddhist path. Like, yeah. I, I, yeah. I really, you feel like you have like a deep affinity with it, you know? Definitely. Yeah, I, I certainly do. Yeah. Um, but I, like you said, there's a lot about them that speak, I think, in many ways. It's kind of like you said, I think the Judaism, the, the, the Abrahamic faiths and Islam, Judaism, Islam, Christianity, ultimately are, are, are about the same thing, which I, you seem to agree with. Something about the way the, some of the Asian traditions, right, the, the, uh, the Dharmic sort of traditions, I guess they call them, um, something about the way those, those traditions speak to the same thing that Christianity and Judaism are talking about, um, and the way they go about speaking it, um, really resonates with me, I guess. Um, maybe it's, it, it, it's, it's, I don't know what the hell, maybe, uh, what, what do you think? I mean, obviously you, you feel the same way, right? You come from, a, I came from a Christian tradition and I, I sort of went to, I discovered Asian traditions and it helped me understand my Christian tradition in a much more deep and abiding way. And I, it almost sense the same thing may have happened with you. So much so, yeah. They yeah. they say that Zen is the religion before religion because it's yeah, yeah. it's 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 not any yeah. kind of words, any kind of it just is the practice of meditation. Yeah. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. It's the Asian traditions, whether it's Taoism or or um or or, or well the many Buddhisms, right? Or Taoism or the many Buddhist many of the Buddhist traditions and their different incarnations and many of the Hindu traditions as well the emphasis they have on practice um and on the experiential realization of the ideologies that they talk about right the ideologies almost come second zen is really that way right hinduism right gets a lot more metaphysical but but ultimately right they're all about what you've what you're experiencing as opposed to what you profess to believe which is there's a big emphasis on in the Judeo-Christian traditions, right? Yeah, I think I that that's what is it that attracted you to it's the, Asian the fundamental community? crux of it is the the realization of yourself, yeah. the realization of really what you are, yeah. is the fundamental shift in the Eastern versus Western manifestations of yeah. spirituality and religion. That in in the East, the direct realization of your deepest self shifts everything. Where Beliefs can change things, but they don't shift the phenomenology. They don't yeah. shift the, yeah. the, the deep experience of our, our human being. Yeah. Yeah. And then I get, uh, once again, maybe that gets back to this dichotomy we've been talking about of experiencing authenticity or enlightenment, whatever it is, and reflecting on that or theorizing about it. Um, and how the, the latter can separate you from the former. Um, and yeah. I think that, you know, the, the, uh, 
the Asian traditions are very mind, the ones that I, I like and that you do, I think are very mindful of that. So maybe that's the crux of it. Yeah. Any final thoughts for today? Like, this has been a wonderful conversation, brother. Thanks so much. Yeah, for me too. No, it's, it's been great. Uh, yeah, no, I want you to tell me the meaning of life. That's why I, I, want, <laughs> I was relying on that. Seriously, my whole quest as a, philo- as a philosopher, honestly, I'm like Socrates, I guess. I really am the guy who knows nothing. Um, and I'm just looking, looking, looking for, for wisdom and, uh, yeah, salvation, redemption, spiritual redemption, wherever I can find it. Um, and I'm getting increasingly desperate as life goes on because uh, yeah. I don't think I found it yet. Um, if you have any advice for a, a, a seeker like me, um, I'd be I'd love to hear it. Yeah, I can only share with you what the rabbis say, which is the highest form of wisdom is kindness. Hmm. Right, like. Yeah, and that every moment is an opportunity to express that. Yeah, and in expressing that, do you find that you reconnect with the ground of a deeper ground of your being? Yeah, it's funny in, in the in the ways that we first talked about not knowing that you do. Yeah, but you know, like uh, in Judaism, they they talk about like a mitzvah, a good deed connects mm. us to the divine. Like mm. the good feeling connects us to the divine. Deep, deep exploration has its place, but also, you know, the, sh- the sharing of, of a coin is the same thing. You know, it's like. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I agree. I, I can see. And whenever I've done that, I have felt more at home in the world. Yeah. So inspired by you, I'm going to go out and do something nice for somebody when this is yeah. over. Oh, <laughs> I'll do the same. Let's see Fair if we enough. can't transform this place. Yeah. Excellent. Really. Thank you. Okay.